word today is taken from John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law. According to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Whoever, anyone who claims to be the king, opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, oh, sorry, mistake. Um, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot 
who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This is the Gospel of Christ. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Could be wrong. When Lee was up here earlier doing her talk and talking about doing predestination and propitiation and substitution that with the children, I kind of got the feeling in the room that people were thinking, I want to go and do that. (laughs) So sorry you're stuck with this. Uh, I'll be watching to see who sneaks out and decides that's going to be more interesting. Uh, So we're going to be looking uh, this week, uh, just part of a, a very short series leading up to Easter uh, we're looking at John 19. We're also jumping a little bit back into John 18, which we read and talked about last week. So if you've got a Bible uh, on your device, you're allowed to use it, or uh, in the hard copy, you're, uh, it'd be great to open that up and follow along as well. Uh, and we're going to be focusing today on uh, the figure of Pontius Pilate and his interactions with Jesus. And I just want to kind of, before we begin, flag up front, because of the way John works uh, as a storyteller, as a writer, he packs so much into the small details that there's a, there's a lot here that we just don't have time to look at. So I want to suggest maybe that uh, you might like to go back uh, maybe this afternoon and, and reread these couple of chapters slowly on your own. Maybe even in the week leading up to Easter, you could go back to about chapter 13, 14 in John, uh, uh, read through that chapter or two a day leading up to Easter and just turn it over in your mind and look at all the, the detail that John packs in some of which we'll touch on today, a lot of which we just can't. So there's a suggestion for you. But for us uh, today, I'd like to start by thinking about a question that Pilate asks back in chapter 18, in verse 38. What is truth? Now, I think that's a good question to start with, particularly today, because it's a question that plagues our society in 2018. We live in an era of radical scepticism about the very idea of truth. Now, if you pay any attention to these things at all, I probably don't need to convince you of that very much, but I'll just give you one example. Uh, A couple of months ago, Oprah Winfrey, who is kind of the high priestess of modern spirituality, got a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes. Now, I know you all watched it because those award shows are so important and we're all obsessed with them. But just in case you missed it for some reason, uh, let me refresh your memory of part of what she said. She said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. Did you get what she said there? Not speaking the truth, speaking your truth. That sums up a lot of what her life's mission has been about and an awful lot of what our world around us believes, and in Oprah's big moment, that's what she called on the world to do, speak your truth. And in so many areas of life today, including religion and spirituality, we allow, we even encourage people to have your truth 
Each individual's own truth, whatever works for you, whatever gets you through the night, as John Lennon once put it. Our our culture today values self-determination. And so the, the idea of your truth sounds lovely. I mean, it's impossible to live it out consistently, and even people who argue that don't really believe it if you push them a little bit. But it sounds lovely. It sounds liberating. It sounds free. The truth sounds oppressive and authoritarian and restrictive. And then along comes Jesus. And he makes statements like these ones. Just let me give you a couple from earlier in John's account of his life. Chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Or in chapter 14, very famously, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or John himself describes Jesus this way. He says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then in chapter 18, as we come to our section, Jesus looks at Pilate and says, the reason I was born and came into the world was to encourage and inspire each person to find whatever kind of truth is going to work for them. Actually, hang on. He says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. See what Jesus does? He claims that there is absolute truth and that he is the very embodiment of it, that he has a special access to it that he's come to give to us. And so Christianity doesn't really fit into 21st century New Zealand because it makes powerful claims about absolute truth. And it makes powerful claims about absolute truth not because we as Christians think we're smarter or more enlightened than other people, but because we believe Jesus is the truth and we believe God has opened our eyes to that truth and the truth has set us free and we want to encourage each other in that truth and we want to share that truth with a world that desperately needs it. And so we're looking at Pontius Pilate today, a man who confronted the truth in a way that you could say no one else in history ever did. And yet for him, the truth did not set him free. In the end, the truth challenged him and oppressed him and confused him and ultimately it imprisoned him and crushed him. Actually, that's the wrong way to say it. It wasn't the truth that did those things exactly. It wasn't Jesus that did those things. It was Pilate's response to the truth that did those things. And it was the response... It was a response powerfully shaped by many other factors going on. So what I want to do is is look today with you at Pilate's response to the truth that confronted him, that was standing right there in front of him, think about why he responded the way he did, and think about how his response helps us to consider the way that we respond to the truth. So uh, very briefly, uh, who is Pontius Pilate? He he only shows up in the Bible in relation to Jesus' uh, death, to his trial and death. He's also mentioned uh, in other contexts in ancient sources like Josephus and Tacitus. So what we know about him is that he was the Roman governor of uh, the area of Judea from 26 to 36 AD, so that's in the reign of Emperor Tiberius. 
And Judea, of course, included Jerusalem, which was this key city. Uh, Pilate wasn't always based in Jerusalem, but the Roman governors would tend to come to Jerusalem at Passover time because lots and lots of people flooded into the city and it tended to be a, a time of unrest and uprising and danger. And so it made sense for the governor to kind of be there and oversee everything that was happening, keep a close eye on things. And governing Judea was kind of a poison chalice because the Jewish people were far from happy at living under Roman rule. Uh, Largely that was for theological reasons. You had Israel in the Old Testament, uh, the special people of God, a great nation, and so now being ruled by the godless Gentile Romans didn't really sit well with them. So uprisings were common. There were all kinds of hopes for freedom and liberation from Rome. And so you can, you can sort of have that as background. And then as you read John 18 and 19, you see this clash between Pilate and the Jewish leaders of the day, and you understand where that's coming from. So with that little bit of background, what we'll do is we'll work through this account fairly quickly, as I said, and we're going to look at four key questions that Pilate puts to Jesus. Uh, and think through that together with the the picture of his interaction with the Jews and build up a picture of how it was that Pilate responded to the truth. So question one, uh, if you've got your Bible there, this isn't on the screen, but this is from chapter 18, verse 33. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Essentially, he's saying, who are you from a human perspective? In the lead up to this there, Jesus has been arrested. He's been handed over to Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest. Caiaphas then takes Jesus over to Pilate. And Pilate says to the Jews, what charges are you bringing against this guy? Why am I involved in this? Why don't you take him and deal with him? Uh, The Jews put it back on him to be involved. And so Pilate comes to Jesus and says, are you the king of the Jews? What's your human identity? What are your origins, humanly speaking? And as we saw last week, Pilate's first thought here seems to be about earthly kingdoms, whether there's going to be some kind of political uprising centred on Jesus, whether Pilate's going to be in trouble because this guy is leading an uprising. He's going to have to answer to Tiberius for his job or maybe for his life if it goes really badly. Now, Jesus' answer, of course, befuddles him. We saw last week that Jesus spoke about being a king but not of a kingdom of this world. And then Jesus goes on to make those enormous claims about coming into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate finds that all too confronting, and so that leads to his second question, chapter 18, verse 38, what is truth? Now, it's possible to read that as a genuine question. You know, Pilate hears Jesus say these things about the truth and kind of leans in and says, what is truth? I'd really like to know. But actually, I I think it's quite clear to me from the context of this as you read through it, it's not that kind of question. It's not Pilate genuinely saying, please tell me more, Jesus. This is a dismissive rhetorical question. What is truth? He doesn't hang around for an answer. If If you read through the story, he goes straight back out to speak to the Jewish leaders again. But more than that, think about it. Pilate is caught in a mess that he wants no part of to begin with. And now he's hearing this this weird guy standing in front of him, this Jewish carpenter. He's got this little band of followers who claims to be the Messiah. He's standing in front of him saying these things about 
being from God and having a kingdom not of this world and having special access to the truth. He's not begging for his life. He's not saying, it's all a big misunderstanding, please help me out of this. He's doubling down on these crazy things that have got him there in the first place. Now, what's the easiest way for Pilate to get around those things that Jesus is saying? It's to dismiss the very idea of truth in the first place. What is truth? Now, Pilate at this point in the story is meant to be a tragic figure. John wants us to see the tragedy of this man standing literally face to face with the truth and not seeing it, refusing to see it, because it was inconvenient for him. And yet, before we're too quick to cast the first stone at Pilate, we need to realise that he is not that different from us. Because the Bible's perspective is that human beings, left to their own devices, will always respond this way to the truth. Let me come uh, bring you across very quickly to another part of the Bible, to Romans chapter 1. Uh, just looking at this quickly, because I think this is such a powerful description of the same kind of dynamic at work. Uh, and it's worth taking a minute to look at this. So from Romans uh, chapter 1, pick this up at verse 18. This is Paul writing, and he writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Human beings have a fantastic ability to suppress the truth when the truth is inconvenient. You know, sugary soft drinks taste fantastic. It can be lovely and refreshing. I know they're really bad for me, but when someone offers me a Coke... I suppress the truth. You know, when I'm, when I'm up late at night watching TV and I know I should go to bed because I've got to function the next day, but I want to watch one more episode, I suppress the truth of what I've got to deal with tomorrow and I sit there a little bit longer. Al Gore made an entire documentary around this, didn't he? He put out that movie years ago now on climate change called An Inconvenient Truth, trying to say to the world, look, climate change is real and we've got to deal with this. It may not be easy, but it's no good suppressing the truth. What is the most inconvenient truth that sinful human beings will ever have to face up to? Well, it's that there's a God. That there's a God who made us. A God who actually owns us. A God who knows what is right for us. That we are not best off when we work it out for ourselves or we put ourselves in control of our own destiny. A God that deserves our ultimate love and our trust. And so even though there is evidence of God's power and God's nature all around us, the Bible's account is that we suppress that truth. And today, we, we live in a world today that is so enamoured with the idea of freedom and self-determination that it can respond to the very idea of truth at all by saying, what is truth? And suddenly, as we think about that, it's not so hard to relate to Pilate as he stands there looking at Jesus and asks this question. In that moment, for Pilate, it was decidedly inconvenient for him to acknowledge that maybe, just maybe, this man standing in front of him was exactly who he claimed to be, that he did in fact bear witness to the truth in a, in a special way, in a decisive way. 
And so after he's asked that second question, Pilate goes to the crowd of Jewish leaders. This is when we get to chapter 19 that we read. Tries to get Jesus released, but they refuse. And so Pilate takes Jesus, has him flogged at the start of chapter 19. Seems like he hopes this will satisfy the desire for punishment. And you can see how he's being cowardly here, can't you? Because he still thinks Jesus is not guilty, but he wants peace. He just wants this whole thing dealt with. And so back and forth he goes with the Jewish leaders. But in verse 7, the Jewish leaders remind Pilate of something important. They say to him, we have a law, and according to that law, Jesus must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And John tells us that made Pilate even more afraid. And so he goes back into Jesus and he asks a third question. Verse 9, where do you come from? Remember that first question? Are you the king of the Jews? That, that was really asking about his human identity, but now Pilate wants to know about his spiritual identity, about his spiritual origins. Where do you come from? If, if you tell a, a Roman man in the first century that someone's claiming to be the son of God, they'll probably start thinking, which God? Has he been sent to do something bad to me? Because the Roman gods weren't merciful and kind and gracious. They were nasty. So if you find out, hey, this guy thinks he's the son of God, it might not be good news for me. Pilate's fearful. But then in verse 9, again, we read, Jesus this time gave him no answer, just silence. It seems like a line has been crossed. The time for interacting, the time for Jesus to speak the truth has passed. Pilate has hardened his heart and so Jesus goes silent. And with Jesus going silent, Pilate asks his fourth key question, verse 10, don't you realise I have power? either to free you or to crucify you. This time, of course, Jesus does respond, verse 11. He says, you would have no power over me if it weren't given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, there's some uh, debate about who the person referred to at the end of that verse is, the one that handed Jesus over, being guilty of a greater sin. I think it's Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. I think that's who he's talking about. And he was supposed to be, a leader and a teacher of God's people. So Jesus is saying there's a sense where for him his guilt is greater because he had even more reason than Pilate to see the truth, and he didn't. But Pilate is still guilty. Jesus gives him one more hint of exactly who he is. He says to Pilate, you think you have authority? You think you're in charge here? Oh, my goodness, no, you've completely misunderstood. The only power you have at this moment is because my heavenly Father gave it to you. The only reason I'm standing in front of you in these shackles is because God's plans are being perfectly worked out in this moment. We're told in verse 12 that Pilate still tried to set Jesus free. That's the end of his interaction with Jesus, but he now goes and tries to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders seem to put their finger on his real weak spot. In verse 12, they say to him, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. See what button they're pushing with Pilate there? You, you have to pick a side here, Pilate. If you pick the side of Jesus, 
you're going against Caesar. You wouldn't like that to get back to him now, would you? We might accidentally tell him. You can see what they know really matters to Pilate in this moment. It's not his standing before God. It's his standing before Caesar. It's his earthly reputation. And so after another brief moment of hesitation, finally in verse 16, we're told Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. And in that moment, he seals his reputation as one of the most tragic figures in history. Face to face with the truth, catching this this glimpse of ultimate reality, and yet he couldn't see it. He wouldn't see it. He was blinded, wasn't he? He was blinded by his upbringing in Rome's pagan religions. He was blinded by his desire to keep the peace with the Jews, to make things easy on himself. He was blinded by his desire to protect his worldly position. He was blinded by his desire not to rock the boat, not to make things awkward or uncomfortable. He was blinded by the desire for safety and for security and for a good reputation. And you get another hint that he still saw something in this Jesus with the sign over the cross. Puts that sign up, people ask him to change it and he says, no, I'm leaving it as it is, the king of the Jews. And yet he's made his decision. Maybe in his head he knows there's something special about this man. But in the end he rejects that. He suppresses that truth and he does what is convenient rather than what is right. And of course, Pilate's problem wasn't his access to the truth. It was his response to the truth. It was all those other factors that stopped him from seeing it properly. Friends, it's not that different for us, is it? The problem for us is not our access to the truth. The Bible insists that we have everything we need in creation, but much more specifically in God's written word to us and in the person of Jesus. The problem is our reception of that truth. And there's so many things that complicate our ability to respond to the truth properly. Uh, That'll be true for you if you're not a Christian yet and you're still looking at Jesus. It'll be true for you if you are a Christian. Not, Not necessarily in the same way, but as we go about our day-to-day lives, for all of us, there is pressure on us uh, to, to live lives where we listen to Jesus, where we listen to the truth of God's word, where we fix our eyes on Jesus, where we trust him, where we obey him. There are still going to be factors that complicate whether we do that the way God wants us to. It might be our upbringing. That was an issue for Pilate. It might be an issue for us. It might be a desire to keep the peace maybe to keep the peace at home or at work or at school. Maybe it's a desire to protect our reputation with others. Maybe it's a desire not to rock the boat, to keep things safe, keep things secure, rather than exposing ourselves to that confronting and demanding challenge that Jesus puts on us. And yet, and yet, the great news is, Jesus promises that if we give ourselves to him, if we listen to his voice, if we turn to him in trust, if we turn aside from those pressures and distractions where the world keeps us from responding to the truth as we should, 
Jesus promises that he's come to bear witness to the truth, that when we look at him, that when we listen to him, we're liberated from the emptiness of trying to find our own truth and we're given something so much better, the truth. He promises us that if we hold to his teaching, we really will be his disciples and that the truth will set us free. Jesus is the very embodiment of grace and of truth. So what, what are those pressures, what are those worldly factors that might make it hard for you to respond to the truth of Jesus the way that he wants you to? We live in a world today that is deeply confused about truth. But truth is something that should be a source of joy, of thanksgiving, of confidence, of assurance, and of transforming our lives. Because the truth isn't just an idea, something that we debate and discuss. The truth is a person. And the truth is the greatest person of all. A perfect person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So brothers and sisters, let's don't join the world in its confusion about truth. Let's do something far better. Let's continue to rejoice that the truth has set us free. Let's devote ourselves to knowing that truth and living for that truth, no matter what happens as individuals and as a church family. Let's encourage each other to continue in that truth. And let's continue to hold out that truth to a world around us that maybe now more than ever desperately, desperately needs that truth. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus, that he came into this world to bear witness to the truth, that he is the truth, that the truth can set us free. Father, help us to see clearly what in our lives, what in the world around us might take us away from that truth, make it easy for us to suppress that truth and hard to respond to it rightly. Father, please transform us by your spirit so that we will love the truth, that we will hear the truth, and that as we turn to Jesus, the truth will set us free. And we pray it in his name. Amen.